in our Bible studies over the next couple weeks. Um, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest, I, I sort of feel like I'm living in an extended episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, things are just weird. That's why I just, everywhere I go, that's like, you know, we just keep talking about, well, this and that and the other thing, and, you know, the things that people are having to do at work, and the things that we're having to do with school, and the things that we're having to do just in our daily lives, and it's just strange. Um, we had the privilege of uh, giving, you know, giving lunch to the, uh, the school this week, uh, both the Stonewall and the McCliff uh, folks, and, you know, that was a great chance to get to meet people, and uh, you know, just had that conversation over and over again about how different this year is going to be in, in so many respects. And, uh, you know, here we are, we've moved here. And, and I, don't, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, people have said several times, well, you know, you're, you're moving in the middle of a pandemic. And I, I don't know, we just haven't really thought about it that way. We're just sort of doing the next thing. Does that make sense? Just kind of doing the next thing. Like, what's the next right thing to do today? You know, it's, it's what we often will tell somebody after they've experienced a tragic diagnosis or someone's passed away in their family or, or something like that. Is like, what do I do? Well, just, you know, you wake up tomorrow and you pray and you say, God, how about today? What do we do now? You can't look at the thing long term too far because you'll get overwhelmed. And so on one hand, we want to plan. We want to prepare. We want to be careful. We want to be faithful in those ways. But on the other hand, uh, in seeking wisdom, we also want to be sure that we don't give way to anxiety and, and to fear. And um, I just want to encourage you. God is with you. And uh, we're going to be talking about how we're choosing to hope uh, starting next Sunday for, for the next four to six weeks. We're going to be in several passages throughout the scriptures and examples of, of what hope means biblically and uh, what the Bible has to say about it. And so uh, look forward to that, I hope, and, and uh, we'll get some information to you next Sunday about some of the passages we'll be looking at. Uh, but I want to spend one more week in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because honestly, I plan on beginning the sermon on, uh, series on hope this week. And as I was going over my notes last week, I just thought, you know, we really should take some time and explain what it means uh, for the Bible to talk about salvation in three different tenses. That we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And I, Kenny, I appreciate you uh, pulling out that song. Uh, how many of you went to False Creek and got to sing that with Bill Green at some point? Anybody else? Hey, that's the thing I just remember the most. You know you're getting up there a little bit. And I mean, you look at me and say, okay, come on, Junior. Riley, really? <laughs> but, but seriously, people don't get my pop culture references anymore. You know, they, they don't understand what I'm talking about half the time. When I, I remember the first time it ever happened to me, this is before the Star Wars revival had taken place, if you will. And I, I showed a video from The Empire Strikes Back, and it was that old, it was a VHS tape, you know, back in those days still. And I showed a, a video of Yoda and, and Luke running through the, the swamp. And Vicky said the kids started turning each other and going, who's that guy? Who's the green guy? You know, what is this? You know, and of course, today you, you see Star Wars stuff everywhere. But that was the first time that it ever happened to me that I talked about something and people didn't know what I was talking about. And, and then, you know, I think it was last was it last week or no, it was that I went to a youth meeting, uh, youth workers meeting uh, Monday or Tuesday. And I made the comment about Jay Leno going around and, and doing the quizzes on the street. And I thought. I bet half of these guys don't even know who Jay Leno is. <laughs> and so uh, some of those references and some of those reference points change. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I think about that song. Every time I think about this idea of, of being saved and continually God saving us 
from things and, and from ourselves. And then ultimately that one day we will be saved and, and receive our reward. And 2 Corinthians 5 has that same effect. So we're just going to go ahead and read that whole passage one more time. Beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from our worldly or from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for the scriptures and we pray, Lord, that you would illuminate your inspired word. That you would make it a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. That you'd help us to behold wonderful things from your law and to hide your word in our heart that we would not sin against you. Lord, let your word be like a two-edged sword penetrating down to soul and spirit and joints and marrow down to the very thoughts and intentions of our heart, helping us see who we are and who we are before you. Do not let this book of the law depart from our mouth, but help us to meditate upon it day and night, that we be careful to do everything that is written in it, that we may be prosperous and successful in your sight in the things that matter most. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach and that you would rebuke and that you would correct 
and that you would train us in righteousness for every good work for your kingdom's sake. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's have a look at this passage together. What does it mean to be saved? Well, we we talked a couple times about this idea about what it means to be in Christ. Okay, the last two weeks. To be in Christ means that you have taken refuge in the grace of God by grace through the Son of God. And so this is what it means to be saved. So to be in Christ means to be saved, and to be saved means to be in Christ. And that is a permanent state of affairs for the believer. Once we have come to Christ, we have been changed forever by what Christ has done in our lives. We are a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. Now, you may have heard that too many times because that would have been a great place to say amen. (laughs) I mean, let's just think about that one more time. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. And that's great news. Now, this is probably not a conversation that you've had very often. And don't get overwhelmed here, okay? This is just kind of to help me a little bit. Uh, I'm a visual learner. So I, I, I got a, a chance to get out my Bible software last night, and I just typed in the word saved, just out of curiosity. And this is probably not a conversation that most of you have had, but people sometimes talk about these kind of things. And they'll say things like, well, I don't know if in today's world that we should use the word saved to describe what Jesus has done for us. Now, my first question is, have you got a better word? Because I can't think of one. Because I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead and now I'm alive. And that sounds an awful lot like being rescued. And even if you use the word rescue, you're not far away from the word saved. So maybe some other time we could elaborate that a little bit more. But but here's what we find in Scripture. The word saved is a biblical word. I mean, it's all over the Bible. It's everywhere. And, And just in the New Testament alone, for instance, over 30 times the Apostle Paul uses the word saved. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, the word saved appears. Over 300 times in the Bible, it's there in different tenses and contexts. And what you can see is the majority of this circle is this word sozo, which means to save or to deliver. It has the idea of being plucked out of something, like if you're drowning and someone comes and grabs you out of the water, for instance. Being rescued from a house fire. Being being rescued from some kind of danger, you know, pushed out of the way of something that's going to hurt you. And so it's over and over and over again. And it's used in different tenses and different contexts. Now, sometimes this word saved is used of of people rescuing or saving someone. Okay, so it's not always God that's doing the saving. In other words, you know, it might say, uh, you know, so-and-so threw a spear and saved their friend from their enemy or something like that. That does happen from time to time. But the majority of the time we see the word saved throughout all of Scripture. Now, this is just by the New Testament, by the way. Uh, That's why we're dealing with Greek. And I can't read half of those words. I didn't go to seminary yet, so I... I don't know Greek, but uh, Greek is Chinese to me or something like that, I guess you say. But, but here's the thing. What I do know is when you, when you get out your concordance, right? How many of you got a concordance at home? One of the old Strong's concordances, right? It's the size of a couple Metro phone books stuck together. Every word that's in the entire Bible is there. And so when the pastor says something like, well, you know, um, 
your sin will find you out. Like that verse that, I, well, where was that one? Well, then you can look up the word sin or the word find and, 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 you, and you can go down every instance in Scripture. Well, then if you want to dig a little bit deeper, you can get out your vines dictionary or something like that, right? And you can look up what the Greek or the Hebrew words might be. And sometimes there's interesting things that you see. But what I find interesting is this, that out of 33 or so times, right, basically 25 or more times where the Bible says save, it's using the same word and other times it's using derivatives of that word. In other words, it's always pretty much saying the same thing, to be rescued out of or delivered from something is the idea, the context there. And it's fantastic. And God saving people from their enemies. God saving people from themselves, amen, at times. And, and then ultimately Christ saving us from our sins. Now, going back again to this idea, right, that there's a, a, a definite point in our life where we need to be able to say, maybe not everyone can say like I can. I mean, I can go back to the very day, and I actually literally have gone back one time to the very place that I was saved. It was awesome. <laughs> You'll have to ask me about my Moses stick sometime when you come to my office. I'll tell you all about it. But my dad was in the hospital down in Oklahoma. I think he was in Lawton at the time. And, and I ended up leaving later than I had meant to leave. I was going to try to get back uh, earlier in the day and, and, and so forth. And so I, I, I called ahead and I just said, listen, I'm, I'm about a day behind and I'm just going to make a, a, take advantage of this opportunity. I'm going to make a stop. And so I went back to Davis. I went back to Red Rock Canyon and I, and I walked right back to where I was saved. Not everyone's able to do that, but I remember July 26, 1995, Red Rock Canyon. And so remember, here's my arrival, April 21st, 1979. Optimistically, my departure date, April 21st, 2079. Okay? What happens in between? That's the question, right? So what happens in my life from that cross until the day that they put a tombstone at the end of that line? What happens? What's going on? I'm saved by grace through faith. In 1995, but then what happens for 84 years, right? Well, what happens is 2 Corinthians 5.15, for instance, right? It says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. When we become a new creation, we have a whole new set of priorities, amen? It should alter everything about us. That's why sometimes you hear pastors say things like, if your faith has cost you nothing, you may not have any. It may not cost you your life, but sometimes we begin to wonder if it could. Do you know today, right now, right now, it's possible that Pastor John MacArthur could be arrested today. His crime? Having church. It's an interesting situation to be in. Now, I recognize we're not suffering the same kind of persecution as the church in China. I don't know if you know this or not, but they have been pulling down crosses and bulldozing China, churches in China for years that were allowed to operate for a long time. If you have a Bible study in your home that's not registered with the state church in China, you can go to prison. And in many cases, you will never be seen again if you're arrested for something like that because it's considered an act of political subversion to have an unregistered church meeting in China. It can cost you your life. If you're lucky, it will cost you your livelihood. Can you even imagine? You will be removed from the party. You won't be able to get the same medical care that other people can. Your kids may not be able to go to school. They almost certainly would never be able to go to college or university. And there's a very good chance 
that that whole family is going to end up making your Christmas lights for the rest of their life because they bucked the government system in the name of Jesus. It's a whole nother sermon. But we live in a different kingdom and we serve a different master. And what happens here is Christ changes us not just once, but through the Holy Spirit's power and through the scriptures and through fellowship and through discipleship and through accountability and all these different things. He changes us every day. Doesn't he? Are you the same today that you were six months ago? If you're reading the scriptures and you're in fellowship and you're in prayer, probably not. I guarantee you, if you're in the word of God regularly. If you're in fellowship with other believers regularly. If you're in worship regularly, every now and then God's going to put his finger on something in your life and say, you know. You maybe shouldn't be doing this. Or maybe you should be doing more of that. And that process is what we call sanctification. Now. Again, I said I'm a visual guy, right? Okay. Hang with me here. Everybody recognizes the, the Mona Lisa, right? Mona Lisa's interesting. We get to see it every now and then. They've, they've done all kinds of cool stuff over the last couple of years. Like they've, they've x-rayed it and they've, they've scanned it and they found like buried under the paint some of the, the rough draft pictures. If you're an artistic kind of person, it's really fanta- fascinating what they can do with some of these things now uh, technologically. But here's what I'm going to say. Every time that... That, that we talk about God, we're, we're, if you will, doing theology, or at least in that moment we're theologians. You may not realize this, but every one of you is a theologian, whether you're six or 60. Okay? And it doesn't stop there, by the way, if you're 86 or 96 or 106. My friend Cleo Bearden, she's 103 years old. She's a theologian. And she's probably a pretty good one, <laughs> I would say by now. She's been saved a long time, and God's been very faithful to her. What I'm going to say, though, is anytime you think about God, anytime you talk about God, anytime you try to decide what a a Bible verse means, every time you ask or answer questions about God, you're doing theology, you're you're being a theologian. And so we can say, and I understand why we say these kind of things, like I'm not really hung up on doctrine and theology and that kind of, I, I really understand why we say that. But we should also be really careful because that kind of thinking is what helps people like David Koresh be successful in what they're doing. You've got to know your Bible. So that you understand that the guy that comes and tells you that he's the reincarnation of Jesus and he should marry your 13-year-old cousin is lying to you. Okay? You have to know the scriptures. But whenever we do theology, I feel kind of like I'm trying to reproduce the Mona Lisa with finger paints. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I can answer a question like when someone comes to me and says, do we have to get baptized to be saved? I can look at the scriptures. We can maybe get out the concordances. We can have a discussion about that. We can go to some different places. By the way, the answer to that is no. Okay, I don't believe the Bible teaches that you have to be baptized to be saved. If you are saved, you should be baptized. But the Bible does not teach that salvation comes from baptism. It's a symbol of what God has done in your life, like your wedding ring. You're married whether your ring is on or not, but this ring is an outward symbol. Now, uh, you know, there are people I I know that might disagree with me. Uh, When I lived in southwest Oklahoma, there was a church of Christ across the street from every Baptist church around. And and, and as a discussion, we had many times. But here's the thing. Whenever I'm trying to describe what an almighty, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful God is doing... And I have none of the things that I just said about him. It's a struggle, isn't it? 
I mean, how can someone be fully God and fully man at the same time? I don't know. <laughs> but I know it's true. How can God say to Jesus on the cross, rather say to the, 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 the guy next to him on the right, <laughs> isn't that right? I guess I should have read that passage before this morning, shouldn't I? We all make mistakes. <laughs> but to one thief, right, he curses Jesus, you know, you're just getting what you deserve. And to the other, he says, what, today you'll be with me in paradise. How can God forgive a man in his last moments for everything he's ever done? I don't know, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful that if there's a man somewhere right now laying on the side of the highway dying and he realizes that he does not know Jesus, that if he calls out, Jesus, please save me, that God will. That is amazing. (laughs) The grace of our God. I can't fully explain it. And sometimes we get into Christianese terminology. And what I mean by that is this. We, even the word saved, right? People may struggle with that. I remember one time uh, there was a, a Bible that was laying in the foyer of the church. And I was talking to a guy that had come for some help. And we were in 1 John. And, and he was reading and he was going along just fine. And then the, the, the word propitiation came up. And it's a, it's a good word. I mean, it's in the Bible. It means something. And I tried to explain it to him. But it was a, it was a roadblock in that moment. Because now I had to step back and kind of explain this theological term. I don't want us to get in trouble with that today. But here's the thing. We have to understand that Christians speak their own language, don't we? Sometimes I like to call it Christianese. Maybe you've heard that before. And we talk about things that are very strange to people who are not in the church. Like quiet times and prayer lives and accountability partners, right? And people don't always know what that stuff means. And then even Baptists, we have our own kind of Baptist-ease language sometimes. But we talk about this again. We are saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. And we describe that with some of these kind of theological Christianese words. And so here's three of them. That we are saved refers to what's called regeneration. That we are being saved refers to what's called sanctification. That we will be saved refers to what we call glorification. Now, what does that mean? Well, let, let's, let's just take it as, as uh, distill this, unpack this, just take it easy on these. Don't, don't, uh, don't tune me out, okay? Uh, and by the way, anytime I bring up this kind of stuff, I'm not trying to show off how smart I am. Because I aren't, okay? Uh, I think John Wesley said it well. He says, I've never had an original thought. And I very often leave a conversation like this thinking to myself, I totally am not smart enough. That must have been God. Okay, so to to regenerate means to regenerate, right? To generate electricity or to generate something means to make it. To regenerate means to be remade. Sanctification refers to being made holy uh, and glorification refers to, if you will, our ultimate state in heaven with God. That we know of. It could be even more awesome than the Bible has even told us. Wouldn't that be something? Just get there and just surprise after surprise. Oh, wait, there's more. Oh, wait, there's more. Isn't that what heaven might be like? I really think so. And I'm looking forward to it. But here's what I'll tell you. Maybe one way to think about it is to be regenerated is to be born or to be reborn, as Jesus says. Sanctification is our growth. Right? Toddling around, learning how to stand, learning how to eat, those kind of things. And then glorification maybe is our maturity. That's one way to think about it when we ultimately receive everything that that we're we're growing towards. Uh, Regeneration maybe is a way to say we're remade. We might say that we're renewed through sanctification. We might say that we're rewarded, right? Jesus said, you know, enter now into your what? To your reward. To those who are faithful. So we are saved, the Bible tells us, and 
2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That does not mean that Jesus sinned. That means that Jesus took our sins upon Him. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt that we... He did not owe on our behalf. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace, past tense, you have been saved. Okay? We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt that he did not owe on our behalf. And by grace, through faith, we are saved. Not by works, not by what we do, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's a, it's a fixed reality. And though Jesus was sinless, He became sin in a sense on the cross that we might become righteous. We have been saved. We didn't work for it. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved, Ephesians 2.10 tells us, for good works. We are saved from what we did by what Jesus did. Again, that's good news. So some of us, again, are saved from things. Some of us are saved out of things. And and some of us are being saved in the midst or through things just right now. Part of what I mean by that is in in 1 Corinthians 1.18, you know, the the Bible talks about uh, how the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are what? Who are perishing. And, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, here's what I don't want you to misunderstand. This isn't like if somebody were delivering a pizza to you, okay, and they didn't make it to your house. That's not what we're talking about by being saved. This isn't a process that can be derailed. Are you with me? It's not like somebody starts getting saved and then at some point they lose their salvation, you know. Uh, I really love what one, one, one man had to say about that. He says, nobody wakes up one morning and goes, oh my gosh, where did my salvation go? I can't find it anywhere. You know, it doesn't work that way. It can't be lost. Once that process begins, it's going to come through to completion. The Bible talks about um, he who began a, a good work in you, right, will bring it through to completion. And so we are saved, past tense. It's a reality. It's what God has done in our lives. But then we are being saved again in the midst of our difficulties. So those who do not believe the gospel, they're continually perishing. They're, they're, they're freight training towards the end of their life and towards an eternity separated from God. But those who are being saved, we are going, sometimes trudging through a a world that is very difficult for us to live in, sometimes as believers. And we are being made like Jesus every day, the scripture says. Went the wrong direction. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are what? Are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is in or who is the spirit. It's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the word about new creation, the word that's used is, is the word that we get the word metamorphosis from. You know, so like a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. We found this amazing, amazing caterpillar one time in Missouri. The thing was just absolutely huge. And, you know, you're usually kind of supposed to leave nature in nature, but, uh, you know, we didn't know any better. And so we had one of those 
uh, cages that we could hang in the sunroom. We, we put that moth uh, or that caterpillar up in there and we, we just didn't know any better. So we put some leaves in there and we figured, well, maybe it'll live, you know, just to kind of see what happened. And we thought for sure it was dead. It, it wrapped itself up in that chrysalis and time went by and time went by and time went by. And then one day, one of the kids went out there and looked in there and there was a moth the size of a catcher's mitt inside that cage. It was what they called an emperor moth. The thing was huge. And it came from a, a, you know, a caterpillar about this long. But what had happened? Can that thing ever go back to being a caterpillar again? It's changed forever. That's what it means you know, to be a, a new creation. The, the, that thing was fundamentally changed by that process just like we are. But then... Other things change as time goes by, right? That, that, that insect is going to mature. It's going to change as time goes by. And the same thing happens to us as we are saved. We are being transformed from experience to, to experience. And we can expect, though, also to experience some of what he has experienced. Jesus preparing his disciples tells them, All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You say, that sounds a little dramatic. Well, here's what I can tell you. I'm 41 years old. And Christians think a lot of things are okay that Christians didn't think were okay 20 years ago. And that's just the church I'm talking about. I mean, the world, the, the world is just the world. And Paul says as much. Remember when he tells the Corinthians, he says, when I tell you not to associate with immoral people, I'm not telling you to not associate with unbelievers because then you'd have to leave the world. That's what Paul says. He says, what I'm telling you is within the church, if there's people that live in open and penitent sin, don't have fellowship with them. Try to lead them to repentance. Help them to come to their senses. But, but we, in subtle ways now, are being persecuted. And in less subtle ways, will continue to be. And there may very well be a time that we are alive where what Jesus said to the apostles was, will be true of, of us. Because it definitely was true of them at different times. You say, well, what if we don't endure? Well, if you're saved, you will. Because it's not once saved, always saved. It's once saved, always changed. And that's why we know that once we're saved, we're always saved. Because we're a new creation. 1 John 2.19 tells us they went out from us because they were never among us. We'll talk about that some more another time. Now hang with me just a few more moments. Okay? You know what they say about a, a lady in the choir that puts her slippers back on when the pastor says, in conclusion, don't you? And she's an optimist. <laughs> But just hang with me a few more moments. This is worth its time. About 1990-something, I read a book by Charles Stanley called Eternal Security. I was wrestling a lot with this. And, and to be honest with you, I still wrestle with eternal security. Not because I don't believe it's true, but because I just... I struggle to believe that anyone, including God, could be that graceful. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I just I struggle not to believe it, but to fully accept it. That's what I mean by the finger painting again. I mean, how do you really take that in? 
And so what Stanley says is he asks this question that I, I haven't ever been able to find a way around. He says, what sins did Jesus die for in your life? And everyone, would, everyone agrees. He died for everything that happened between April 21st, 1979 and July 26th, 1995. And then he says, well, did he not also die for everything that happens over the next 84 years? If Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, what sins did he die for? Only the ones that you committed before you got saved? Thank God, no. Now, again, another sermon. We'll have plenty of time to, to talk about these things, I hope. Confession, repentance, you know, those sort of things. They are important. Specific repentance. Lord, I shouldn't have kicked the dog or cussed my mom today or whatever it was that you did. You should pray specifically if you know you've sinned specifically and you can Because it does matter. Sin still offends God, but you are forgiven. All means all. But remember that discussion about the earthly tent back in chapter 5, verse 1? Paul talks about that earthly tent. Some of you know what that means, right? I had the privilege of preaching a funeral for a friend a while back that used to do a lot of camping with his family. And they'd get those tents out and they'd have to tend to them every now and then, you know, because they'd get ripped, the wind would take them, or they'd, you know, get left out, and they'd get kind of mildewed, and they'd have to cut out portions, and, and just, you know, that tent over time, it would just kind of beat down a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and then eventually they just have to go get themselves a new tent. The Bible describes our body as a tent. And some of our tents are a bit tattered. <laughs> and some of us are a little bit afraid right now of what a, a good gust of wind could do to us. And Paul talks about how he's conflicted because on one hand, he wants to stick around for the sake of those that he's led to Christ and those that he's discipling and, and the world that doesn't know the gospel. And on the other hand, he thinks to himself, well, what's the worst that could happen? I could stand face to face with my Savior. That's why Paul can say things in Philippians 1.21 like, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because, I mean, what's the worst thing you can do to Paul? He's been shipwrecked, bit by serpents. He's been beaten and left for dead at least twice. Maybe gone half blind by malaria, if we believe what the early church fathers tell us about some of these things. And so somebody says, well, Paul, stop talking about Jesus and we'll kill you. And he goes, oh, no, don't send me to heaven. <laughs> and then he goes out and preaches the gospel. He doesn't care, right? Because you can't kill a man when he's dead. He's been crucified with Christ. And he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. But here's the thing. These tents that we have, they're not going to last forever. And there's, there's two ways that we, quote, will be saved. The, the last end of this, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 50-53. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. There's two ways to get in, if you will. The first way is to descend by death. That's the most common option. Uh, as it were. Every one of us will more than likely die at some point. Mortality is the number one cause of death in America. And, and, and here's the thing. You don't sow a stalk, right? You sow a seed. That's what the Bible says. 
And, and, and so that, that has to die. Jesus talks about it, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it remains a seed, right? And he's talking about himself and the resurrection, but he's also looking forward to us. And Paul is diving right into that language with both feet in 1 Corinthians 15, that we will die and also be raised just as Christ was raised. That's the only hope that we have as Christians. And if Jesus wasn't raised, we're all wasting our time this morning, Paul says. Not only could you be doing better things on Easter Sunday, but the other 51 weeks a year, you could be making better use of your time if Christ wasn't raised. Our hope is in vain. But hallelujah, he was raised. And because he was raised, we were raised from death to life by grace through faith. And then one day, if I die, and I don't have all the mechanics worked out, because Charles Ryrie tells us one thing, and C.I. Schofield tells us another, and you know what I mean? We, We get in the Bible notes and the quarterly notes and the commentaries, we either do this or we do, but, but you know what? The Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And whether there's some kind of a, a, a sleep that we awaken from, or, and, and I tend to lean this way, that if I died of a stroke right now, I'd be looking at your beautiful faces right now, and then I'd be staring into the face of my Savior the next. Somehow that lightens the fear of death a bit, doesn't it? To think of it that way. (laughs) But even if there's some period of us resting here on earth, I I just believe it'll be like a moment. And then some of us are going to get lucky (laughs) because we won't die. And Christ could return by the end of this sermon, by the end of this day. And the trumpet will sound and the heavens will be torn open and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who are alive will meet him in the air. He said, that's that's foolish talk. Yes, it is. (laughs) That's what Paul says over and over again. Only people that are fools for Jesus believe things like dead men get up out of their graves and ascend to heaven. Only fools from the world's point of view believe that one day he'll come back. Call me a fool. I don't just believe it. I live every day hoping for it. Longing for it. Every time I see some terrible thing on the news, I just think to myself, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Every time I hear some miserable news that someone gets, I think to myself, Lord, I don't want to be in too much of a hurry because I know you tarry so that more could repent. But Lord, one day, one day, And I don't have it all worked out, but I know when the Bible says that Christ will return, it means it literally and it's physically going to happen and it's imminent any moment. And here's how we should live. We should live as though Christ died yesterday, as if he rose this morning and if he's returning tomorrow. Because we're not guaranteed a moment. John Randalls came to preach at First Baptist Altus almost every year for revival. And, and nearly every year he would say at least once, every moment your heart has to ask God for permission to beat and one day he will say enough. In other words, your life is completely in the hands of God. 
What does a crisis like what we're experiencing right now do? I caught myself. I said to someone this week, and I think I might have mentioned this last week. I said, you know, it's, it's an unusual time when you think to yourself, I could die because I went to the grocery store. And then immediately afterwards, I thought to myself, well, is that really any different? Now, I'm not trying to be morbid, okay? Don't get me wrong. I said, man, this guy's really fun. Where did they find him? <laughs> you know, death, doom, gloom, you know. But, but think about it, right? Think about it. I mean, I know a guy one time, his friend did two tours in Vietnam and came home and took three fingers off fixing his lawnmower. Not a scratch, two tours in Vietnam, you know. You hear about people that, uh, that, that you know, they, they go on a, a train ride on their way home from, you know, being overseas as a medical missionary. They pass away on the train ride after they've been helping people heal from Ebola, you know. Uh, you, you, you just never know when your time's going to come. So we should live with intentionality. We should live in a way that redeems the time. And we should remember that not only is our tent withering away, but there's a whole world full of people whose tents are tattered and whose days are numbered. And they need to know about Jesus. And it's our privilege to tell them. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask, Lord, that through your spirit, that you would speak to our hearts right now. And if there's anyone in this sanctuary or someone later that listens to this message or is watching us on Facebook this morning and they don't know you as their Savior and Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I I beg you, Lord that you would reach into their soul and you would show them where they stand with you and that they need to be saved. Because regardless of whether there's illnesses in our nation, regardless of whether we're experiencing wars or famines or any of the horrible things that could happen to us, Lord, our days are numbered and no moment in our life is guaranteed. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us, Lord, to number our days that we could apply our hearts to wisdom. Help us, Lord, to seek you while there is still time. And Father, if there's anyone in this sanctuary this morning that needs to be saved, I pray today would be their day of salvation. And I pray, Lord, for those of us that know that we're saved, God, if we've stumbled into sin, if we've just kind of gotten into a rut and we're just content with where we are and we're not growing spiritually, we're not serving you, I pray, Lord, today that would change. God, that we would rededicate our lives, recommit ourselves, or, or even just pray, Lord, that you would deepen our walk. Lord, there may be somebody here today that's been saved and not been baptized, or, or Lord, someone that has, has, has been through all of those steps in their faith, and maybe you're calling them to serve in this church in some way, to, to serve in the mission field, to surrender, to preach, Lord, to be a missionary in their, their school or their workplace or to their family. I pray, Lord, that you would just prompt them this morning to respond. And whether it's at the altar during our invitation today or before they leave, Lord, I just pray that you do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? And we're going to sing. And if God has spoken to you,